In this particular passage of Scripture, we have noted that the Apostle Paul is dealing with duty, having already dealt with the subject largely of doctrine. Uh, There is a practical application to be made of the content here to the hearts of God's people. This is a practical chapter, chapter 3, in a practical section of the book. Just to recap, the first two chapters of Colossians are mainly and basically doctrinal. The third and fourth chapters are chiefly practical. And it's always important for us to remember that teaching is not just to feed our minds, but it is calculated to be worked out in our lives. What God teaches us, we're to put into practice. Now there are several truths emphasized in this third chapter that are of vital importance to Christians. We've spoken already about the word of the Lord in verse 16. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. And that is a reference to the entire Bible. The word of Christ is not just those things that he said while he was upon the earth, but it is the entire content of the Old and New Testaments. The word of the Lord. We then spoke a certain amount concerning the worship of the Lord. Again here in verse 16, he says, Teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. We're not going to recap all that we said about that. But our worship of the Lord, even our sung worship, is important. It's really important that we sing the Lord's praises. The Bible tells us that the Lord inhabits the praises of Israel. And we are to be a singing people. When we get to heaven, we're going to be singing. That's clear from anything that we read concerning glory. There's a lot of singing that's taking place. They're singing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. They're singing, worthy is the Lamb that was slain. So the worship of the Lord is important. And then in verse 17, the topic is really the will of the Lord. And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. The will of the Lord. This is actually, in reality, a summary of the duties set forth in the previous verses. Uh, This is a statement, and the further statement uh, that is found in verse 23 form a summary of what has been said up to this point. It is a statement, verse 17, that crystallizes all Christian conduct and behavior. You could call this a great principle for Christian living. Whatsoever you do, in word or deed, that means whatever you say and whatever you do, you're to do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. This is Christian conduct and behavior, Christian living. The Christian life is a life to be lived. It's not just a profession to be made. We're to actually follow the Lord. We're to live for Him. 
We were just saying there, living for Jesus, a life that is true, striving to please Him in all that I do. That's the subject here. You could actually use this as a motto for the Christian life. It is a fundamental principle that must undergird and govern everything in our lives. It's a comprehensive exhortation for each and every believer. And as I say, along with verse 23, it forms a principle for living. And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. The first question and answer in the catechism, the shorter catechism, is what is man's chief end? What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. There is a similar verse to be found in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It is verse 31. And it simply says, Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Is that not a principle for Christian living? It certainly is. So the will of the Lord is summed up here in this scripture. And I'm thinking particularly of Colossians 3.17. Three things I want us to consider that are before us here. First of all, note the activities of the Christian. The activities of the Christian. There's really a very broad sweep of material included here. Because you have two words, whatsoever and all. And whatsoever you do, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Whatsoever, that means anything at all. All, that means everything. Now I want you to notice right away, Paul is not involved in what we call in theology, casuistry. Casuistry is seeking to make a definitive list of do's and don'ts in order to live the Christian life. Now obviously there are things that we should do, and there are things that we should not do. But Paul does not attempt to reduce sanctification or our walk with God to a whole big grand list of do's and don'ts. There's no detailed list of regulations. It's not a matter of do's and don'ts, but it is a comprehensive principle that covers everything, all areas of life, and everything that we say and do. In that way, it preserves the Christian liberty of individual believers. So I'm not here to tell you every last single thing that you should or should not do. Because frankly, I don't live in your home with you. I don't walk and live with you every moment of every day of your life. There are some churches where ministers and elders try to do that. There used to be what was known as the shepherding movement, which I feel was a very dangerous development in the church. Because it does away with Christian liberty. It's a form of popery. In that the church becomes the autocratic center of worship. The church tells you what to do. 
If the elders and the minister approve of it, it's fine. If they don't, it's not fine. And they try to involve themselves in every single area of your life. Including sometimes telling young people who they should or should not marry. It's a very dangerous thing. But it's been found in biblically based churches. The bondage of a detailed list of rules is actually something that belongs to false religion. If you go back in Colossians to chapter 2, I want to show you this from verse 16. Colossians 2 verse 16, Paul is warning the Christians here in this way. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days which are a shadow of things to come but the body is of Christ. He has in mind particularly the regulations of the ceremonial law, feast days, new moons, ceremonial Sabbaths, the kinds of things that they were to eat and not eat. Some people still wanted to regulate the lives of Christians in the New Testament by the book of Leviticus and tell them that, well, what you're eating there is unclean. Whereas God had told Peter, don't call anything unclean. And the Apostle Paul clearly said in 1 Timothy chapter 4 that every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused. But we read on. Which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshipping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding the head, from which all the body, by joints and and bands, having nourishment, ministered and knit together, increaseth with the, the increase of God. Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why? As though living in the world, are you subject to ordinances? Now look at the words in parenthesis. Touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with the using, after the commandments and doctrines of men, which things have indeed a show of wisdom and will worship, and humility, and neglecting of the body, not in any honour to the satisfying of the flesh. We could draw up a list of what is permitted for Christians and what is not permitted for Christians. The problem with that is that we would probably fail to put onto that list certain things that should be on it. And we might also want to put things on that list that shouldn't be on it. Casuistry. There are churches, and I don't want to get into this particular aspect of things tonight, but there are bodies of Christians where everything is so uniform that they were a uniform. One lady told me that she went to a particular church where all the ladies wore either navy or maroon or black dresses. But the belt around the middle of the dress had to be of a particular width. And if it was too wide, it was considered to be ostentatious. And so, this particular woman told me that 
there were people in the church, elders in the church that were uh, dealing with that and telling women that they shouldn't be wearing a belt of, like, say, four inches wide instead of two inches wide. Now, where's that in the Bible? Or the idea that you, you have a beard, but you have to shave the moustache off. Do you know that there are even little children's books? And Moses and Jacob and all the characters of the scripture, they're all men with beards with no moustache. Where does that come from? But this is the kind of thing that some churches want to do. They want to make everything so uniform that you have to conform to everything that they tell you to conform to. Paul here sets out a great governing principle, a guiding principle for Christians. Verse 17. And whatsoever ye do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. Now, if you're doing it in the name of the Lord Jesus, and we'll be getting back to that in a moment or two, we'll be doing it in accordance with the overall teaching of Scripture. It's not a case of, well, you'll do whatever you like. It's a case of doing everything in a scriptural fashion. This is a rule, if you like, to apply to everything that you do and everything that you say. It's a basic principle affecting the activities of the Christian. Notice the two things here, our words and our works. Whatsoever you do, in word or deed, in word Everything that we say is covered by this fundamental principle in word. Go back to verses 8 and 9. But now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that you put off the old man with his deeds. So there's two things, filthy communication and lying. Both of those are off limits. We're not to be allowing filthy communication to come out of our mouths. And we're not to be lying. We're to tell the truth. But this is a general principle, isn't it? Whatsoever you do in word, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. The Bible has a lot to say about the tongue and about our words. Over to chapter 4, verse 6. It tells us, let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer every man. Seasoned with salt. Salt was always known as a purifier. When they used to travel across the Atlantic with barrels of meat, they would put salt in with that meat to stop it from corrupting. That's what it means to be seasoned with salt, that your speech is not corrupt. And there are so many words that are referred to in the Bible covered by this principle. James chapter 3 is the chapter that comes to mind where it speaks about the tongue. And all the danger of the human tongue, how it is outlined there very clearly for us. The tongue is actually described by James in chapter 3 as a little member that boasteth great things. And he says, Behold how great a matter a little fire kindleth. Sometimes you see these signs along the road when you're near forests. 
You used to have a little teddy bear on there. It looks like Yogi Bear. And he's warning people, right? About lighting fires, about naked flames. Because a spark can set off a forest fire. That's what the Bible's talking about here. How great a matter a little fire kindleth. What a great amount of wood can be burned up just by a little spark or a small flame. And he says the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members that it defileth the whole body and setteth on fire the course of nature and it is set on fire of hell. He says some really strong things here. Every beast has been tamed, but the tongue can no man tame. It's an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Oh, how our tongues need to be controlled. How often the Bible in the Proverbs speaks about our words. But then there's our works. Whatsoever you do in word or deed, the things that you do, here we have our works. Whatever you do, wouldn't that include every activity? Wouldn't this apply to everything that comes under the heading of our practice, our conduct, our behavior, our actions, the deeds of the life? How important is doing the practice and not just the preaching? James spoke of that, didn't he? James said that we are to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass or a mirror. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, that's the Bible, and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. This man shall be blessed in his deed or in his doing. The Christian life is about doing. How important this is. There's an old adage that actions speak louder than words. And so they do. Matthew chapter 7 records the following from verse 20. Wherefore by their fruits ye shall know them. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. See that? It's not just those who say, it's those who do. And the Lord gave a parable in the context of that. He said that the person who hears his sayings but doesn't do them, He's like a foolish man that builds his house upon the sand. The man who hears the words and he doeth them, he says, I'll liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. When the rain descended and the floods came, the winds blew. It beat upon that house and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. See, the difference is in doing. Again, the Lord Jesus referred to the importance of doing in Matthew chapter 23. He talked about those who were quick to say, but not so quick to do. 
Matthew 23 from verse 1. Then spake Jesus to the multitude and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. All therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do. But do not ye after their works, for they say and do not. They don't practice what they preach. They say, but they do not. Whatsoever ye do, in word or deed. That takes in everything, doesn't it? Everything that we say, everything that we do, is subject to this. It's to be done in the name of the Lord Jesus. Would that not be a great safeguard upon our behaviour? Do my words go along with a Christian profession? Are my words fit to be uttered by a child of God? Am I a man of whom it can be said that my word is my bond? You can trust what I say? What about my works? My actions? If I can't say or do something in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, then it's wrong. It's wrong. Good question for us to ask ourselves is this. Would I say this? Or would I do this if the Lord Jesus was standing beside me? Would I say that? Would I talk like that? Or would I do that action if the Lord Jesus was right there? Because the reality is he is right there. The psalmist said, I have set the Lord always before my face. Living as in the Lord's presence. Again, whatever I say, whatever I do, would the Lord be in agreement with it? Would the Lord approve of it? These are questions that we should ask ourselves honestly. This will be a great check upon our behavior. It will be a great check upon our words. What does the Lord think of this? The actions of the Christian. And again, in connection with that, you have the authority of the Christian. In the name of the Lord Jesus. That's an interesting phrase. Whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Verse 17. What does that signify? Well, the name indicates The Lord Jesus as he has revealed himself. If you like, his character. Who he is. The name of Christ is all that Christ is in himself. In the name literally means in vital relation with him. Or if you like, in harmony with his revealed will. So if I'm doing something in the name of the Lord Jesus, it is in keeping with his will. And in keeping with his word. It is in subjection to his authority. Now we know what to do and we know what to say. Because it's revealed to us in scripture. The Bible is our guide. Divine revelation is our guide and our compass. Not our conscience. How often have I heard this? Well, now, let conscience be your guide. I will tell you this, that conscience is only a sure guide when it is a conscience 
that is in total subjection to the truth of God in the Bible. So you have people who will say, well, I, I don't have a problem with that. My conscience isn't bothered by that. But if you read your Bible, you'll find that the thing that they're talking about is something that bothers the Lord. So it should bother their conscience. The trouble is that their conscience is not subject and submissive to the Word of God. Let conscience be your guide. No, only if your conscience is a conscience that is in subjection to the truth of the Lord in Scripture. And this is what the name of Jesus refers to. It refers to his authority. Let me give you an illustration from everyday life. Someone writes you a check. And you can only cash that check if they have signed it with their name. They put their name on the bottom and that allows you to cash in the amount that's written on that check. And that money is taken from that bank account that belongs to them. You see, that signature of theirs is the authority that gives you the right to take that money and to be able to bring it out of the bank and put it into your account. The believer has to speak and he has to act by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to the words of the Lord himself in John chapter 14. Jesus said in John 14 verses 13 and 14. And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. There's the authority. We're asking for something. We're asking for it in the name of the Lord Jesus. It is in connection with his will. Same thing is found in chapter 16 of John. Chapter 16, verses 23 and 24. And in that day ye shall ask me nothing. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it you. Hitherto have ye asked nothing in my name. Ask and ye shall receive, that your joy may be full. It is in the name of Christ, by his authority. And so in the name of Jesus is something that will serve as a great check on our behavior. Can I do what I do and say that it is to the glory of his name? In what I say and in what I do, would I want to attach the name of the Lord to it? The commentator Lenski said this, it means that absolutely everything is to be done in the light of the revelation of our Lord and harmonize with that revelation. So it has to be in keeping with Scripture. The will of Christ. We know that the Christian is not under the law as a means or as a ground of his salvation. You're not saved by law keeping. You can try your best to keep the law and you're never going to be able to do it. But even when it's true that the Christian is not under the law as a means of salvation. He is not lawless. He's under the law not as a way to life, but as a way of life. It regulates his life. 
His life is ordered by the word of Christ. A Christian who's walking with God is going to have the same attitude as Saul of Tarsus had when he was converted. He gave his testimony in Acts chapter 22 when he heard the voice of the Lord speaking to him on the road to Damascus. He says, And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said unto me, Arise and go into Damascus, and there shall be told thee, there it shall be told thee of all things which are appointed for thee to do. What shall I do, Lord? Is that how you live your life? What shall I do, Lord? What do you want me to do? Do you pray about things? Do you pray about everything? Every decision that you're going to make? However small? Do you take it to the Lord in prayer? You should. Because everything that we do, in word or deed, we're to do in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is the authority of the Christian. The third thing, as well as the activities of the Christian and the authority of the Christian, we can see here in this passage the attitude of the Christian. In connection with this, we're to be thankful. Giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. Earlier, we read in this chapter, verse 15, And be ye thankful. This is an age of ungratefulness. A lot of people just expect to get whatever they can get. And they don't even say thanks for it. The Christian is to be giving thanks unto God and the Father by Christ. It is in connection with every word and deed that we should be asking the question, can I thank God for giving me the opportunity to say this or to do this? Or is it something that you know the Lord would be against? And therefore you can't really be thankful to God for it because you're not supposed to be saying it and you're not supposed to be doing it. Take a decision that we might make to go to a certain place, any place. Can I scripturally thank God for placing me there? Or would the Lord be sad and grieved to find me there? Should I even be there? In general, the believer ought to be thankful, of course. With much to thank the Lord for. Even in our trials, we can still be thankful. And we should be thankful. Paul says that to the church in chapter 4, verse 2, continue in prayer and watch in the same. With thanksgiving, don't forget to be thankful. You see people in restaurants all the time, they just get their food delivered and they just start like hogs, start eating. Never even bow their head for a second to thank the Lord for the food. They're not used to doing that, they don't do it. Remember when we were in school, in day school, as little kids, we couldn't even eat our school dinners without having prayer. Yes, we did. Thank you for the world so sweet. 
Thank you, Lord, for what we eat. Thank you, Lord, for the birds that sing. Thank you, Lord, for everything. Amen. We used to sing that as children. We were taught to do it, to be thankful to the Lord. This is an age of great ungratefulness and unthankfulness. We are to be thankful. In chapter 1, verse 12, Paul writes, Giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Do you thank the Lord for saving you? You ought to. Every single day. Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Every Sunday night when I attended my home church, before I was in the ministry, when I was just there as a member of the congregation, before the minister would pray, we would all sing. Every single Sunday night. Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Thank you, Lord, for making me whole. Thank you, Lord, for giving to me thy great salvation, so rich and so free. And then we would sing, and I'll cherish the old rugged cross. Oh, for thankfulness, real thankfulness in our hearts. Now notice again, all that we do, all that we say, is in and by Jesus Christ. See, he's to have the preeminence in all things in the Christian's life. It says in verse 11, Christ is all and in all. Christ is all and in all. He is to have the preeminence. And of course, when we think about what Paul is saying here, it is implicit really in these words. It's implied that we are to give thanks in all circumstances and at all times. But we read that in the Psalms. Psalm 34 verse 1. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. We must always be seeking to wear what the Bible calls the garment of praise. Being thankful unto the Lord. May the Lord work that in us. May the Lord help us to have the activities of the Christian. May we remember the authority of the Christian. We do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. And may we always remember to have the right attitude as a Christian, giving thanks unto God and the Father by Him. May God help us to be practical Christians for His name's sake. Amen.